may be unaware of the fact that we keep a record of all the songs and hymns that we sing each Sunday in Charlotte Chapel. Uh, this is partly to make sure that we don't sing the same songs again and again ad infinitum and ad nauseum. Uh, but we also keep a record which we send to CCLI, Christian Copyright Licensing International, to whom we pay a fee, which they then disperse among the authors, to allow us the legal rights to reproduce songs on screen and in print. Every six months, CCLI produce a list based on these returns of the top 25 songs that Christians are singing in the United Kingdom. It is a very revealing list that tells you not just what Christians sing, but where their focus is and what Christians feel is really important. During this year in the mornings, we've been studying and evenings studying the book of Acts. Have you ever wondered what the first Christians sang? Well, there are no statistics to tell us, but we can work it out. Uh, all of them came from a Jewish background. So their hymn book would have been uh, the book of Psalms, the Hebrew hymn book in our Old Testament. And if we were to restrict then our choice of favourite hymns to the book of Psalms, there are 150 of them, then I'm pretty sure what would be number one for Christians and for non-Christians, if you check the record from the crematoria at funeral services in the UK. Number one would almost certainly be Psalm 23. Sung to the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. However, we can be pretty sure that Psalm 23 was not the favourite psalm of the early church. Not that it was unpopular or dismissed, it's part of God's word. And the reason we know this it's because you can check the frequency with which the Psalms and the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures are quoted in the New Testament, in speeches and sermons in the book of Acts, and also in the letters that were written by the Apostle Paul and others. Now, when you do that, when you use that criterion, which was the most popular psalm among the first Christian churches? I'd be surprised if most of you expect one or two experts here he went up in the balcony smiling at me, would know the answer. Well, it depends whether you count direct quotations or allusions as well. But there are three or four psalms that the early church particularly focused on. And this morning I want to focus on what is definitely one of those, and it may even be number one, but it's actually Psalm 2. Uh, so I went to turn to it, and under the unoriginal title of War and Peace, which I think summarizes what the psalm is about, I want you to just turn to Psalm 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. It really will help to have one in front of you because we're going to look at it together. It's page 543 if you have a pew Bible. Now, as we read it together, I'd like you to ask yourself two questions. One, why was this psalm such a favourite for first century Christians? And two, why is it not such a favourite for 21st century Christians? And let's pray by the help of the Holy Spirit that some of you might change your minds by the end of this sermon. All right? So let's read together. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you'll be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Near to Edinburgh Castle is the Camera Obscura, which is well worth a visit if you've never been. You can look down into the city and focus on a single person walking along Princess Street, or no doubt into Charlotte Chapel, which, well, might be able to use that sometime. Uh, But in order to put that person into context, you need to put the street and city into context, to step back a little, as you can do these days with Google Earth. Or, get a much wider view, an aerial shot, of earth from space. Now, a psalm like Psalm 23, wonderful psalm, gives a helpful snapshot of me and my circumstances from within my lifespan. But Psalm 2 gives the bigger picture from space, or in the words of verse 2, verse 4, from the viewpoint of the one that was enthroned in heaven. It's a psalm that encompasses Nations and human history within the scope of the eternal and unchanging purposes of the Lord Almighty. And supremely, it focuses in on the Lord's anointed one, his appointed king, who is central to all his plans for nations and individuals. Now, like many parts of the Old Testament, this psalm has to continue the camera metaphor, uh, two perspectives. It has a short-range focus. This psalm is about the nation of Israel. It's about the appointment of a new king. A nation subject to Israel uses this time of political change as an opportunity to form a confederation to challenge the authority of the new king and to break away in independence. That's a short-range focus of the psalm. Uh, But it clearly doesn't fully describe any specific circumstance in Israel's history or adequately fit any of Israel's kings, even the greatest of them, David. Rather, we need to turn the telescope round and look at the psalm from the long-range focus in which not just the nation of Israel, but the nations of the world are in focus and in which... The sharp focus is not just on the appointment of a king, but it's a focus on the king, who is the Lord's anointed one. Verse 2. The word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, which, from which we get the word Messiah, or Christ in Greek. So this psalm is ultimately 
about the coming Messiah, who is also God's Son. Now, the first Christians recognized that the promise of this psalm, too, had been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is why they valued this psalm so much. For it enabled and encouraged them to place their experience, their faith, and even their difficulties in the context of God's great plan for human history. And I simply want to say today, it should do the same for us as we read it with the help of the Holy Spirit. In a recent commentary on the Psalms, John Goldingay writes, Living in a post-Christian era in the West means living in an era when the culture has thrown off the constraints of the Christian faith, but the Psalm promises that this will not be the end of the story. So look with me more closely at the Psalm. You'll see in our... English versions, it's been divided into 12 verses. In the original, there are four stanzas made up of three verses each in our Bibles. So we're going to look at each one in turn. Uh, and it kind of shifts, the, the, the sort of mood and the, and the theme shifts from one thing to another. So we start off with verses 1 to 3, the people's plot, man in rebellion. The people's plot, man in rebellion. Uh, There's no ascription at the beginning of the psalm, like many psalms, and and some scholars think that Psalm 1, which you'll see in front of you, and Psalm 2 were originally one psalm. Uh, They're the introduction to the hymn book, as it were, and Psalm 1 focuses on the individual. You'll see, blessed is the man. When you come to Psalm 2, the focus is broadened to the nations and the peoples. But Psalm 1 warns us of the consequence of the man who is opposed to God, while Psalm 2 focuses on the danger of nations and peoples that are opposed to God. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Psalm 1 points out that the man who turns against God does so because he listens to the advice of the wicked, adopts the behavior of sinners, and finally allies himself with mockers. So he is in similar company. Enlarge the company a little, appoint some leaders... Expand their influence, and you will influence a nation. Get a group of like-minded people together, and you will have a league of nations conspiring together, which the psalm describes. These nations meet in close session, and the psalmist says they conspire. The word is used, the Hebrew word is used, of the waters of the sea, or the swollen floodwaters of a river that are turbulent and uncontrolled. These peoples, or people's groups, plot word plot is an interesting word. It's the same word used in Psalm 1, translated meditate. It means to think about something. And it's a neutral kind of word, depends on what you think about. In Psalm 1, we're encouraged to think about, to meditate and delight in the law of the Lord. But in Psalm 2, the nations think about and reject the law of the Lord. This is negative meditation. Uh, and in that sense, it means to mumble or mutter behind the scenes as they plot. If you want a good example, pick up today's newspaper and read the latest mumbling, mumbling and muttering against the Prime Minister while the poor man is on holiday. People are conspiring behind his back. Who knows what's really happening? But, but you know, the muttering goes on, doesn't it? That's what's described here in this psalm. Now, these nations are united in one particular aim. When I first went to India in the early 70s, uh, Mrs. Gandhi was in power with the Congress Party, and uh, all the parties against her decided one time they would try and get rid of her. They were the most disparate group of people you could ever imagine, and yet they united together and they had only one agenda. Let's get rid of Mrs. Gandhi and the Congress Party. 
Now, these nations come together and they have one thing which unites them. They're conspiring together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And what is their goal? What is their aim? Their goal is freedom. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Verse 3. They want to be free from the restrictions of God's law. Obedience to God's law. Obedience to God's son. And so they want to do as they please. And this is the story of human history. If you go right back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2 and 3, God says to the man and woman, our first parents, he says, you are free to eat of any tree of the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat, you will surely die. And they chose to go their own way. The rebellion began. And the Old Testament record is a record of how that rebellion continues and how God in love sent his prophets to warn people to change their ways. Instead, the prophets were rejected, abused, stoned, beaten, down through the centuries. Finally, the Lord sends his own anointed one, his own son, and they plot to kill him as Jesus anticipated. You remember in the parable of the tenants, this is the heir, they said, come Let's kill him and take his inheritance. And notice what happens. It's a a remarkable story. Here's these two enemies, a Roman governor and a Jewish king. Rival religious factions, Sadducees and Pharisees, they united on one issue. We don't want this man to be our king. So he is despised, rejected, crucified. Now, what's the relevance of this? The relevance of this to us is this. Wherever God's people live as he did, they will face the same kind of opposition and rebellion. If you've been with us in our series in the book of Acts, you'll remember what happened on the very birth of the church after the day of Pentecost. The leaders are arrested. They're told not to speak again in the name of Jesus. And how do they understand what is happening to them? They go back and they have a prayer meeting. They put up and shut up. No, Luke's account in the book of Acts shows us how the first Christians interpreted opposition. This is Acts 4.23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. How did they pray? Lord, help us, save us, whatever. No. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, do you see why they appreciated Psalm 2? Gave them an understanding of what was happening to them. It was all prophesied, foretold. And can you see why we in our nation... Appreciate it so little, but need to understand it so much. Understand this, where the church of Jesus Christ lives and witnesses as he did, it will arouse hostility and opposition, not just from individuals, but from authorities, even religious authorities and nations. Why? Simply because people are unwilling to submit to the Lord and Jesus is anointed one, and they will oppose anyone who calls on them to do so. Religion is fine as long as it is build your own Lego religion. But to bow down and worship as the first Christians did and say, Jesus is Lord, to take seriously his demands for my life, my soul, my all, is too much, too restrictive. Very interesting, yesterday if you are at the debate and it's going to be available on film, it began with Christopher Hitchens giving a kind of talk about politics really and about the politics in Europe. 
It ended with Christopher Hitchens having the last word and speaking most strongly against the Christian faith and the restrictions that the Christian faith and the kind of God we believe in places on people. We don't want this man to rule over us. And so the nations plot and conspire, rebel against the Lord, against his anointed one, against his people. And it is that bias within each person to chafe and complain against God's laws and the desire to break free of all restrictions. Get a group of people together who feel the same thing, put them in government, and what do you get? Laws which promote so-called freedom at the expense of God's laws. That's how we need to pray for godly politicians, for godly government. Sadly, we look at the way our own society is drifting, rushing headlong down this path with increasing momentum. And you ask, how will the world finally end? Not with a bang or a whimper, but with a war, the last and great battle of all the nations, ranged against the Lord and his anointed one, and his people, the church, described in the final chapters of the book of the Bible, of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Don't have time to go there. This is the setting for this psalm. This is the backcloth against which human history is being worked out. And if we understand that, we may be in danger of feeling depressed or afraid. But the psalm goes on to remind us of a second theme. Suddenly the mood changes in the next stanza. Secondly, the Lord laughs, God in control. When the Lord looks down from his vantage point, seated enthroned above the heavens and sees this rebellion of nations, is he like the United Nations tragically were in Bosnia, impotent and held to ransom? Not at all. The psalm says that he laughs. On a few occasions the Bible describes, maybe the only one I think of God laughing at anything. He scoffs at them, not because he is laughing at the unfortunate suffering that such rebellion will cause as it always does to the unfortunate citizens of these nations. Rather, he is laughing at the arrogance and stupidity of those who oppose him. Many years ago, when I worked in India, we had a new family come to join us, and I went up to Delhi to meet them in. And we booked into a place to stay, I think it was some kind of mission guest house, and they had a small boy who was about three or four years old. And in the evening, they tried to put him to bed. One of those occasions where, one of those occasions which dispels any lingering doubts you might have about the doctrine of original sin. And, uh, and uh, this boy was not having it. Finally, his father put him into bed, and I just remember, he pulled, you know, you know, you can do with the sheets, you pulled them right across, and the boy was like this, and, and he tucked him in, and he said, now, go to sleep. And then the little boy lay there, and the father turned back to me and sat on the edge of the bed, and I can still vividly picture, as the father was speaking to me, the little boy freed himself, and he shook his puny fist at the back of his father's very large back. And you know what I did? I just burst out laughing, because I thought, this is just, you know... Now, <laughs> multiply that by a million and you have some picture of why the Almighty laughs when human beings shake their puny fist in his face. Unlike the claims of the Daleks, resistance really is useless. Now, notice what it says. Rebellion is in vain. Such rebellion is in vain. Firstly, because the Lord reigns. He's enthroned in heaven in the place of power. Above all human rule and authority, as described by the prophet Isaiah, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. My friend didn't need to do anything to his son. He just spoke his word to him. And here in the psalm, the Lord rebukes. He terrifies them in his wrath. In John's vision of the Son of Man in Revelation that we sang about in our opening song. A double-edged sword is seen coming out of his mouth. Revelation 1.8 
So his word of rebuke terrifies those who oppose him. And what he says reminds them that the Lord rules. The Lord says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord says, as it were, listen, I've already put my own plan in place. And no matter what you do, you cannot frustrate me. You cannot outmaneuver me. Not to trivialize it, it's like one of those films you watch that you really enjoy because you know in the end the hero is going to win no matter what situation occurs. The whole emphasis on these verses is on God's preeminence. The eye is emphatic. He says, my plan is already in place. The installation of my own king on Mount Zion, a picture of something immovable and unchangeable. And so the plan now unfolds in the next stanza. Follow with me, verses 7 to 9. The sovereign speaks. Jesus in authority. What does the newly appointed king say in response to the rebels? He proclaims, he says, the decree of the Lord. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He repeats what is said to him, promised him at his coronation, giving him ultimate and supreme authority. Look at these verses. They describe the decree of the Lord concerning his king. First of all, his public recognition. Verse 7, you are my son. Today I've become your father. This does not mean that the son was adopted at some particular point in time. He is the eternal son. Rather, he was publicly recognized at a particular point in time, like a prince who is born a prince, but acknowledged at his coronation. So these words are fulfilled for the Lord Jesus Christ. We come back to the New Testament. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ at the outset of his public ministry, baptized by John in the River Jordan, and a voice from the one seated in heaven says, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And they're reaffirmed just before the cross when Jesus goes up onto the mountain and three privileged disciples hear the voice from heaven say as he's transfigured, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. From there Jesus heads to Jerusalem. Not to recognition, but to what seems to be humiliation and rejection. He suffers and dies. But the Father does not abandon him. Rather, he declares him with power by, to be his son by raising him from the dead. Romans 1.4 And this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which the first Christians proclaimed. So we'll come to it, God willing, in our series in Acts. Here's the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. What does he do? He goes over to the synagogue, first of all. Here he is in Pisidian Antioch. What does he say? We tell you the good news. Speaking to Jews. What God promised our fathers, he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. Today you are, you are my son. Today I've become your father. The book of Hebrews begins by affirming that Jesus is superior to all Superior to the angels, a message that folk need to hear today. The light of claims about angels. And what does it do? It quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. And we affirm, as we sang already this morning, if you're able to join in a minute, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is Lord. So the decree of the Lord concerning his appointed king begins with his public recognition. But notice it continues with his promised reward. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The newly crowned king, as it were, is assured of a wedding gift. The nations of the earth. How are the nations of the earth won? Through the message of the gospel of Christ. Of his death and resurrection and exaltation. Taken by his followers to all nations. What did Jesus say before he left? Following his resurrection, ascended to heaven. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, what? Of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Our verse of the year, this our 200th anniversary, reminds us we are to be his witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. That is our privilege. That is our priority. Sometimes you get an invitation to a wedding and you're told there's a list of things you can bring. Look at this website and you can choose something. As it were, if I can extend the analogy a little. Our Lord is crowned king and he says to his people, what I want you to bring to me are the nations of the earth. I want you to go to the ends of the earth with this good news of the gospel for all people. And as we do so, the outcome is assured. For Psalm 2 also speaks of his powerful rule. Verse 9, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The last book of the Bible reassures us as it did so relevantly to those Christians living at the end of the first century and repressive Roman rule that the outcome of the last battle is assured. Here's Revelation 19. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Psalm 2 verse 9. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now there is a perspective that we need. That God is in control. He's not some kind of emasculated deity. He is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And we forget that at our peril. He is King of Kings. Lord of Lords, so every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the perspective we need. Now, where do we gain it? Shall I tell you where we gain it? We gain it when we meet like the early church to pray using the scriptures as our our basis. Uh, This week I was given a new book uh, by Ian Randall, Spiritual Revolution, the story of OM, Operation Mobilization. Uh, OM has had a profound influence, as you know, on countless thousands of people and through the ships, almost every nation on earth. Uh, Yet it began with a young man, George Verver, who was a college student, who was 18, 19, and with a group of friends, they got together to plan to do mission in Mexico. But before they did that, they spent nights in prayer. And you know how they prayed? They had an atlas with the nations of the world, and they chose nations to pray for. One guy turned up late and said, I'm a bit late, what's left? He said, Libya. Okay, I'll pray for Libya. I'll take Libya. <laughs> Great. One, guy, one man who was there, I was struck by his words, listen, I'll quote them to you, um, who was at the prayer meeting. He said, they were faithful prayers for the world. To them, they added, he added, it is faithless to speak of countries being close to the gospel. Such an attitude, they feel, degrades God as being powerless. When one of them finished praying for Russia at an all-night prayer meeting, Khrushchev looked like a midget, according to a visitor. And to the young people who say, who's Khrushchev? Exactly. Now, in all seriousness, if this is indeed the case, then we need to turn to the final stanza of the psalm, in which the writer warns, bow in worship. If you really understand this, if you've really got this perspective this morning, it's taken you out of your little... You know, concerns, I know your concerns, you know, your doctor's visit this week, your family concerns, everything else. Don't let me belittle that at all. But step back a moment and see the big picture. Google back and see the picture from the one enthroned in heaven. See the satellite picture that God rules in nations and his son Jesus Christ is the one who is appointed high above all. 
And all, the, all of human history is consumed, will find its consummation in him and his return. Now, if that is really true, then the only wise course is submission. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Now, joy and fear may seem opposing emotions. They're no more opposing than are the love and holiness of God. Joy to the exclusion of fear brings the Almighty down to our level. Fear without joy puts him beyond our reach. Joy and fear maintain the balance of our worship, the two feet on which we walk in the way of the Lord. And the psalmist says that worship begins when we kiss the Son. Don't misunderstand. He is not talking about an air kiss past the cheek or on the lips, certainly. He's talking about falling down and kissing the feet, which I've seen in my missionary experience, and it's very embarrassing when it happens to you. But it's totally appropriate where the Son of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hear lots of talk about people being stained in the Spirit. Tell you what worries me about it? They fall backwards, not forwards. Fall forwards on your face before the living God and His Son Jesus Christ, and you fall and you kiss His feet in worship. You prostrate yourself before Him. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And the psalmist says, this is a matter of the utmost urgency. Do it before it is too late. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you'll be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. His patience can finally end. His anger can flare up, just as you're going about your business, in your way. I speak to those this morning who have yet have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and submitted to his gracious rule. Kiss the son. Lest to be angry, and you'll be destroyed in your way. Just while you're going about your business, it happened like that. You need to be overly dramatic. Your life and times are in God's hands. The warning is to submit to Christ. The message of Christianity is not get, why not give Christ a try. Rather, it is be reconciled to God, accept His gracious peace terms. It's expressed by the Apostle Paul preaching to idol worshippers in Athens, a great cultural centre of the world, to the Areopagus. He concludes his message and says, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You were at the debate yesterday, you'll notice the way in which the resurrection of Jesus was despised and dismissed. In the fine Tyndale commentary on the Psalms, Derek Kidner writes, God's patience is not placidity any more than his fierce anger is loss of control, his anger cruelty, or his pity sentimentality. When his moment comes for judgment in any given case, it will be by definition beyond all appeasing or postponing. So this Psalm contains, we're almost there, a warning for rulers. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Golden Gay writes again, helpfully, it does not come naturally for leaders to serve. Indeed, it is a contradiction. How can a leader be a servant? But leaders have to see themselves as standing in a chain of command in which they're not at the top. They serve God, and thus they lead with reverence. But the psalm does not end with a warning, but with a promise for everyone. A final beatitude. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Kidner again, if you want to come to you on the Psalms, by Kidner, it's just brilliant and succinct. The final beatitude leaves no doubt of the grace that inspires the call of verses 10 following. What fear and pride interpret as bondage is in fact security and bliss. And there is no refuge from him, only in him. Let's seek the Lord again today. Let us pray. Lord, we bow in worship. We prostrate ourselves, as it were, before you and your Son. Forgive us so often for our familiarity. But thank you that we can draw near with confidence through that new and living way that he's opened for us. So we pray for any here this morning who as yet have not bowed the knee. Those who are still in the resistance. Lord, in your mercy, may we hear your gracious invitation to find our refuge in you and in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in which place there is true security, both now in this life and in eternity when we stand before that great throne and the books are opened, give an account of our lives. And Lord, for those of us who know that, help us to live in reverence before you, in joy and in fear, to worship you with gladness, to rejoice with trembling. Give us a fresh perspective on our circumstances, our lives, our history, even of this church over 200 years. You're the God of eternity. And we thank you for the eternal hope that is ours in Christ, in whose name we pray and give thanks. Amen.